Morning. We're asking a very important question this entire year, and that question is, what do I believe? This morning, I would like us to talk about another very important fact that we believe about Jesus Christ. Last week, we discussed the fact that Jesus is the Savior, and today, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is our King. He's the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world, but he's also the king of our lives today. And so as we discuss and discover what we believe this morning, I want us to be able to say as we go, I believe Jesus is my king. So let's pray and then we'll jump into the word this morning together. Jesus, we thank you so much for what you've done for our life. Thank you for an entire week to celebrate that. I pray that you would help us to celebrate in all the right ways and to honor you in so many areas of our life this week. Help us as we spend time in our Bible studies this week and as we spend time um, on our Good Friday prayer experience and then head into Easter, that you would be exalted in praise because, Jesus, you are our King and you are our Savior. In Jesus' name, we all said... Amen. All right. Well, Jesus as king is really important in our lives. It's vital to who we are. It's vital to our faith. It's vital to who we say we are as Christians. It's, it's extremely important in the world around us, and it really is a part of our relationship with Jesus that helps us live and honor him all the time. Because when we say Jesus is our king, or anybody for that matter, what we're saying is several important things. We're saying that that person is the authority in my life. That person's the ultimate authority in my life, and I give them that right. We're saying they're my provider, my protector. We are saying this is the person who has power over me and the one that I serve gladly and willingly, most of the time. But Jesus is not like an earthly king. In the sense that an earthly king requires you and I um, on so many levels and in so many different ways, there's a requirement to serve. Jesus doesn't do that. He lets us choose. It's a choice. And we can choose whether to serve Jesus or not. Now, today is Palm Sunday. So it's the Sunday that we celebrate Jesus and we head to the cross. So this is the Sunday that we celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we'll look at that here in just a minute in Luke chapter 19 and 20. And it's this moment where Jesus, to fulfill prophecy, rides into Jerusalem as king. And we'll look at why that's important in Jesus' day and why that's important for us today. Now, each gospel writer records this event, which means it's very important and has great significance to who Jesus is in that time, but also who Jesus is in our lives today. I want us to look at it in uh, the gospel of Luke this morning. And let me just uh, try to put a bunch together because I'm going to have us read and look at a fairly large section this morning from Luke chapter 19 all the way through chapter 20, verse 19. And in every single instance that we're going to look at this morning, there's several different things that are taking place in Jesus' life through this, through this section of Scripture. Every single moment is pointing to Jesus as Messiah and King. And I'll try to help us as we walk through, see the historical relevance to that, but also the importance that it is to us today as we believe and follow Jesus too. So let's grab our Bibles so, uh, and turn to Luke chapter 19. So open your Bible or turn your Bible on, whichever you do, 
and uh, jump to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read it for the, from the New Living this morning. It says this. After telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. I was recently thinking to myself as I was looking into this, I wonder if I could go get a new truck this way. <laughs> Just drive off the lot and when they ask, the Lord needs it. Is the Lord going to drive it? Sometimes, but most of the time I will drive it for him. <laughs> Verse 35. So they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. Let me just stop there for a moment because I want, to see, I want you to see two bookends here. You remember when Jesus came in Luke chapter 2 and the angels said about him what? That he would bring peace and there was glory in the highest heaven. So we have two bookends here. At the beginning of Jesus' life and at the end of Jesus' life, there is peace and there is glory in highest heaven because of who Jesus is and because he came. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will, leave a, will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. Now, let me stop right here. Um, we'll continue on, but I want to stop here just for a moment because there's something really significant about what just happened and what Jesus just did, and I want to point it out. This moment was a fulfillment of prophecy. And the moment that the Jewish people were waiting for and hoping for and dreaming about for hundreds of years is happening right in this moment. It comes from a prophetic moment and a prophetic utterance by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. And almost every boy and girl would have learned about this prophecy in Beth Midrash. So you would have learned from a very young age that the person that we're waiting for, the Messiah, one of the things, one of the many things, but one of the very important things that will distinguish him from any other is this moment 
right here where he chooses to ride into Jerusalem as king. And Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Now, this is important. It's very important for us today, but it's also important for this moment in history and what Jesus is doing right here in this, this space and time. Now, I often wonder, and um, because prophecy is such a cool gift from God and is such a, something so powerful, but for us here in the United States, it's really something that we study. It's not something we experience. Now, follow me for a minute. Prophecy is something that we study in Scripture. So we can see the prophecy, we can study the prophecy that was, that was given, and then we can see it manifested and fulfilled in God's Word in the New Testament or a couple hundred years later or a couple years later, depending on what the prophecy was declaring or what it was saying. So we can see that in written Scripture. But we didn't live in a time when we saw it and experienced it like the Jewish culture did. Now, we can still experience it today when somebody gives a prophecy in our modern day and we see it fulfilled in our modern day. We've seen that happen in our church, and so we understand it maybe a little bit better than most. But what I'm saying is this idea where the foundation of your culture and a strong undergirding of your culture is built on and based on the prophetic words and the voice of God through others manifested to your culture and to your society, and now you're hanging on those words. We don't really have that experience as a culture, but the Jewish culture did. And this happened to be one of the words, one of the prophetic utterances that they were hanging on, that they were excited about. So as Jesus begins to ride on this donkey and begins to ride over the top of the Mount of Olives and head down the hill and then up the hill into Jerusalem, it becomes this extremely powerful moment as the Jews that are following him, this large crowd all begin to recognize what's happening. Prophecy is being fulfilled right in our midst. Right here, right now, Jesus is saying, I am your savior. I am the Messiah. I am the king of Israel. This is a very, very powerful moment. We will also see later that it's why, or we did in our scripture, it's also why the Pharisees had a problem with it. Because they didn't believe that about Jesus. So they've got a problem with it. The crowd doesn't have a problem with it because they love who Jesus is. And the Pharisees have a problem with it because Jesus isn't a money-making institution for them. We'll talk about that more. Now, when Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, it just becomes this very exciting moment as well. The people are so excited. Uh, they want to declare Jesus as king. They love what they have been seeing in Jesus' life. They love that he's raising the dead, that he's casting out demons, that he's healing the sick, the blind eyes are open. Lazarus has just been called out of a tomb a week before. I mean, there are awesome things that are happening in the life of Jesus. And so they are extremely excited. They're also excited that somebody is leading and teaching in an, in an entirely different way than the teachers of the law. And they're excited about that. But they did not know that Jesus was heading to a cross, not a throne. They weren't aware of that. They wanted someone that would root the Romans out. They didn't know that Jesus needed to be victorious over sin, not 
the Romans. See, they hadn't made the connection yet, but we need to make the connection as well. And this is how you and I are connected to Jesus today. Let me explain this because this is a little bit of the crux of our, of our story this morning and something that you and I need to understand in a very deep way. This is how you and I are connected to Jesus as our king today, just like Jesus was king of Israel in that moment. And what Jesus was saying in that moment is that he was the king. Well, how does Jesus get to be my king today? It makes sense. I could look at the scripture and say, I could see how you could make a case for prophecy and him fulfilling prophecy then and being the king of Israel. But how can you say that he's my king today? Well, this is how. Let's make the connection. Jesus is our king because he rode into Jerusalem not to rule the Romans or the Jews, but to conquer sin. And all of us, every single one of us, need a king that conquers our sin because we're all sinners. Now we've made the connection. Why do I need Jesus to be my king today in 2023? Because I'm a sinner because I'm broken, because I need healing, and I need the peace of God Almighty to rule my life. That's why Jesus is the king of all of us forever, every generation, every person, for all of time until he returns. Now, Jesus continues with this really important day and reveals even more about being king. The very next thing that Jesus does is also a very prophetic thing. Let's look at it together, starting in verse 45. The very next thing that Jesus does, he, he rides into Jerusalem and um, rides into the gate. And right when, you, when, when the, the gate that Jesus would have rode into was right near the Temple Mount. So he would have rode in that gate and right up that gate and right up to the Temple Mount. And right there is the temple. So if you've seen, I probably should have had one in my notes for you to see. But if you've seen that picture of Jerusalem, most of the time it's taken from the Mount of Olives. It's looking over the city of Jerusalem. And you can see, well, today you would see uh, the prayer mosque, the Muslim prayer mosque, and you would see the, uh, the Dome of the Rock there. But where the Dome of the Rock was is, is where the temple was, and you went right in that gate, right up the Temple Mount, and, um, and up to the temple. Well, Jesus rides in that gate, and it says in verse 45, then Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, let me talk about this just for a moment, because this is actually a double prophecy. Okay, it was first said by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter seven, when the first temple had been built. Solomon built this great temple and they've been worshiping at the temple for a long time. But they begin to turn the temple into this religious thing, very religious thing, but even more than a religious thing, a money-making thing. And isn't, I think the worst way to make money is with religion. Do you agree? It's the worst way to make money because you lose the image of God that we should all be celebrating and honoring and worshiping. And this is exactly what happened in Jeremiah's time. And if you remember your your um, biblical history, that Jeremiah comes along and he's the prophet, along with several others, that begin the prophetic utterances that 
the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy Jerusalem and they're going to tear down the temple. And the reason they're going to do that, Jeremiah said, was because the temple is meant to be a house of prayer and you have turned it into a den of thieves. And Jesus goes into the temple and he drives the people out. And why does he drive them out? Because he says, it says that they're selling animals for sacrifice. And so what are they doing? They're taking advantage of the people. So when I sin and I know I've sinned and I know I want my life to be right with God, I go to the temple and I want to sacrifice for my sin, but it costs a ton of money for me to do that. So we're taking advantage of a moment, of an emotional moment, of a time where I need to be cleansed of my sin before God and I can't because I can't afford an animal to sacrifice for my sin. And so Jesus says, this is a travesty. This is horrible. And then he says, he repeats, he repeats the prophecy. And he says, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And you'll remember earlier what we what we saw in verse 43 and 44, Jesus prophesies that what? That someday somebody is going to build a rampart and they're going to destroy the temple all over again. And that did happen literally 40 years later when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem all over again in AD 70. And so Jesus is here once again declaring that this house of prayer, the temple is meant to be a house of prayer. But he's also declaring that this is not the way we will worship God anymore. And this is not the way that you will receive forgiveness for your sin. All of that is going to be destroyed. And then Jesus continues. In verse 47, it says, After that, he taught daily in the temple. But the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word he said. And then we move into chapter 20. And chapter 20 is interesting. Um, we're not 100% sure whether chapter 20 is the week between uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem and the cross, or if it's just how Luke put chapter 20 right here because it seems to fit perfectly with the narrative of Jesus being king and Messiah, and so it's here. Anyway, the point is that they fit perfectly for the story of who Jesus is in this moment. So verse 1 of chapter 20 says this, One day as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, By what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right now, that's a good question. It's, it's a really good question as well when you think about who your king is and who you're going to let be your king. By what authority do you get to be the king? By what right do you get to be the king? And that's a good question for us today. We'll answer it in a minute. Let me ask you a question first, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they are convinced John was a prophet. So they finally replied that they didn't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Now, in a minute, I'll, I'll get to it uh, in, a, in a couple minutes. I'll, I'll explain why it's so important that they needed to believe what John said. And then Jesus concludes this moment of going into the temple, running people out of the temple, declaring himself king with this parable and story about his own life, about the Pharisees, about the teachers of the law, and about Israel's history. Now Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked himself. I know I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked, I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen, his listeners protested. Jesus looked at them and said, then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers but they were afraid of the people's reaction. You can see a lot here that reveals Jesus as king, but I just want to focus on three things today that I think we can pull out and we'll leave the rest for your own personal study. The first is that Jesus is a humble king. The first way that we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem is, a, is revelatory of him being a humble king. See, in these days, in these times, a king would most often ride into the city that he was king over on a horse, not a donkey. Because a horse was a sign of power. A horse was something that somebody rode to reveal their power, reveal their authority, and to declare themselves as a great warrior king. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't declare himself as a warrior he rode in on a donkey, not a war horse. He rode into town with tears, not a sword. His followers were armed with palm branches, not spears. Jesus is declaring himself the king, but he's declaring himself a very, very different kind of king. A king that is not about the business of destroying everybody and creating chaos and winning wars. See, popular patriotism at the time wanted him to destroy the evil Romans. But Jesus wanted to destroy evil at the source. Now, why is that important? 
This is extremely important in this time. It's also extremely important for us to understand how Jesus' kingdom works as well. See, what Jesus is saying is, I am the king, but peace will not come through me the way that it has come through other kings before me or the way that it will come through other kings after me. We've had, as humanity, we've had this... um, this awful way of thinking ever since we sinned in the garden. And the awful way of thinking that we've had for thousands of years now is that the way to peace is to destroy everyone I don't like. It's to go to battle and kill all of my enemies. And once I've killed everyone that I don't like or I think doesn't like me, then I will be at peace. Until when? Until the little boys in that kingdom grow up and become men, and what? We go to battle all over again. And this is basically the cycle of history. That's history in a nutshell. Mankind going to war every single summer over and over and over and over again. I've actually been listening to this podcast called The History of Rome, and it's diabolical. I mean, it's silly. It literally is. Uh, I'm right now in about uh, 100 AD, and so for the past 900 years of the Roman Empire, every single spring, summer, and fall, that's what you do. You go out and find someone to kill. That's it. Before they kill you, we better kill them. Why are we taking their land? I don't know. (laughs) Why are we killing these people? I don't know. But that's the cycle of history for all of time because we have sin in our hearts, because we really don't understand how we need peace and how to attain perfect peace. And so Jesus comes along and he says what? I'm gonna give you peace. Not like the world gives, but I'm gonna give you peace. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but here's what Jesus does. He says, I'm gonna die for your sin and you're gonna be at peace with God. And when you recognize that you, are, you have peace with God and you begin to see the rest of the world like I see the world, you'll understand something different about being human. And that is this, you don't have enemies. You don't have enemies at all. You're all one race created in the image of God. Get along. And that's now our job. That's now our role. As Christians in the world, this is our role on the planet, to show that kind of peace, to show that kind of love that the world needs desperately right now because there are still people that think, hey, I like that land over there. I think I'll just go take it. His humility is also seen on the cross and the salvation that is available when we believe that Jesus is the king of our lives. See, his triumph over sin is received by us, but it's not forced on us. It's not forced on us because he's a humble king. And as servants of a humble king, we are called to live humble lives as well. We're called to live our, lay our lives down for the gospel and serve the world around us in the name of our king, Jesus. So Jesus is a humble king. And this is why we can say, I believe Jesus is my king. Now, the second thing we see about Jesus as king is that Jesus is a peaceful king. He's a peaceful king. 
In verse 32, he said, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late. The peace is hidden from your eyes. Now there's, there's some good news in this verse. The good news in this verse is there actually is a way to peace. But we so often don't understand it. We think we know how to attain it. We think we know how to get it. But anytime we try to get peace in any way except through Christ, we will always be disappointed. If we try to say that we're going we're gonna to establish a government, this great government that's going to bring peace to all people, will that government eventually fail us? Absolutely. All the time. We've got a pretty good one. Is it failing in many areas today? Yep, it sure is. Is it bringing us peace in every single area of our life? No, but it's a pretty good government though. And we haven't figured it out. It's not doing so hot right now. And so anytime that we as men try to say, hey, I got an idea about peace, it's always gonna fall short. We always have to go through Jesus. Now here's what we see in scripture. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And we see this recognized and talked about all throughout the New Testament. Over and over again, we see this communicated. Let me give you several examples. The Holy Spirit gives us peace, Galatians 5 tells us. In fact, it's a product of having the Holy Spirit alive in and through us. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. As we live in the Spirit, we begin to look like love, joy, and peace. It's a product of the Holy Spirit and Jesus in our lives. In Philippians chapter four, it says that prayer to the Lord and to our King releases peace. It stops anxiety and it gives us peace. Prayer to our Lord does that. It has the power to stop anxiety and give us peace. And it's not just a normal peace, it's a supernatural peace that sometimes we can't even explain or talk about or, or even comprehend to someone else or explain in any way. All we know is we are at peace. Why? Because I've been in the presence of the Prince of Peace and I've laid all my anxiety at his feet and I walked out of his presence and I just have peace. In Ephesians chapter six, it says that our feet are fitted with the gospel of peace. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of peace. It's not a gospel of war. It's not a gospel of chaos. It's not a gospel where you and I are confused and manipulated. It's a gospel of peace. We are told to live in unity through the bond of peace. Paul opens almost every single one of his letters with this phrase, grace and peace to you from our God and Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. These two things that Paul says, these are, like, these are my two really big things that I really love, the grace of Christ and the peace of Christ. And I want to extend them to you as the people of God. In Romans chapter 12, it says to live at peace with all of the people that you like. <laughs> live at peace with everyone. That means Seahawks fans, you got to get along with 49ers fans. And Cowboys fans, you got to get along with Eagles fans. Jesus told us to pray for our enemies. 
not destroy them. Jesus told us to love everyone and forgive them, not hold grudges. This is not a kingdom of war. It's a kingdom of peace. Let me go further. Jesus made three powerful comments about peace. The first one was in John chapter 14, verse 27. He said this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Can you turn to your neighbor and say you? Just you, right? I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Chapter 16, verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Turn to your neighbor and say, you will have trouble. So you will have peace, but you'll also have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. But then in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, you might think, well, that sounds like a contradiction. He said this, do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I have come to divide people against each other. I don't know if you caught it, but did you, did you catch the difference? The peace is for you. It's for you. There's no such thing as world peace, unless all the yous believed in Jesus, and then we all got along. We could maybe get there that way, but even Jesus said, what? I didn't come to bring peace. Why? Because there's going to be people that don't believe in Jesus, and there's going to be people that believe in Jesus. And a lot of times, the people that don't believe in Jesus don't get along with the people that believe in Jesus. And if the people who believe in Jesus don't live in peace and love and grace, and they don't get along with the people that don't believe in Jesus, are you getting this? Well, whose responsibility is that? It's the people who live for Jesus. It's our responsibility. Well, Pastor Mark, that person's really mean to me. Yeah, I, I, got word for, I got news for you. They were mean to Jesus too. That's the king we serve. The king we serve had rude things happen to him, had mean things happen to him. And he chose to be humble. He chose to be peaceful. See, the peace that Jesus came to give is personal peace. It's peace for you. But here's what's crazy. It's peace in the middle of what Jesus says, right? It's peace in the middle of your trouble. Now, that's extraordinary, okay? Anybody need peace in the middle of trouble? Holy mackerel, this is awesome. You mean I can get peace in the middle of my trouble? In the middle of my challenge? In the middle of when I'm wrecking things and messing things up and the world's going crazy and the, and, and the world just seems like a mess? Yep, because that's the kind of peace that Jesus brings. And by the way, that's a thousand times more powerful than just killing my enemy and hoping that I have peace for 20 years. Jesus' peace is not only peace for now, it's peace for eternity. It's peace because Jesus has forgiven our sin and we are now at peace with God the Father. 
See, this is who Jesus is. And this is why we can say, I believe Jesus is my king. Third, Jesus is a sacrificial king. Jesus has been telling the disciples for weeks in our narrative, maybe for months, that he's going to Jerusalem to die. He's been telling them over and over again. They're not understanding. They're not getting it. Uh, We talked about it last week. Peter rebuked Jesus in that moment for saying things like that. But his parable in chapter 20 is about himself. It's about the prophets of old. It's about the nation of Israel. It's about the Pharisees. It's about the religious leaders. When he says, a man planted a vineyard, and when he sent his servants to get the grapes, they, they beat them and sent them back empty-handed. So he sent his son. And when, they sent, when he sent his son, they killed him. See, the vineyard is Israel. The farmers are the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The son is Jesus, and the owner is God the Father. And they killed the prophets, and now they're getting ready to kill Jesus. Now, it's astounding to me that Jesus calls them out in this story. Like, literally, it's like public knowledge. And and Jesus did this about two or three times, literally talking right to them, publicly sharing a story, and at other times, even in a more blunt way, just literally goes right out and tells them, you're going to kill me. (laughs) And they do. Like, who does that? (laughs) You should do it a little more sneaky, you know, like wait a couple years or something. I don't know. Instead of killing him, you break his knees. I I don't know what you do. Uh, I I don't don't think about those things. But it's interesting that they actually do what he says. Now, what what does that tell us? Does that tell us that the Pharisees are just dumb? No. Here's what it tells us. It tells us that the cross and the resurrection was God's plan and Jesus was going to see it through no matter what. No matter what. Jesus was going to the cross. He knows he's going to die in Jerusalem. And this is the kind of king he is. He's the kind of king that wants to die to have relationship with you. Can I put it another way? He's dying to have a relationship with you. Seriously. He's dying to have a relationship with you. He's dying to give you peace. He's dying to pour out his blessing and love and grace upon your life. Will you let him? Will you let him? See, this is who Jesus is. And this is why we can say, I believe Jesus is king. Because he is a sacrificial king. Let me share a story with you about sacrificial love. It's a great little story. It comes from Dave Simmons' book, Dad, the Family Coach. And it's a little bit older book, but it's a great illustration. You'll see the, the um, differences in culture in just a moment. He said, I took Helen, my eight-year-old daughter, and Brandon, my five-year-old son, to the mall. There's the first one to do a little shopping. As we drove up, we spotted a Peterbilt 18-wheeler packed with a big sign, parked with a big sign on it that said, Petting Zoo. The kids jumped up in a rush and asked, Daddy, Daddy, can we go? Please, please, can we go? Sure, I said, flipping them both a quarter before walking into Sears. (laughs) Quarter paying for something. Yep, don't get that one. And Sears isn't even here anymore, right? Like, maybe, right, okay. We're dating ourselves. 
They bolted away and I felt free to take my time looking for a scroll saw. A petting zoo consists of a portable fence erected in the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. Kids pay their money and stay in the enclosure entrapped with the squirmy little critters while their moms and dads shop. <gasps> moms and dads, not with their kids? Did I say that out loud? I did, sorry. That was my life when I was a kid. A few minutes later, I turned around and saw Helen walking along behind me. I was shocked to see she preferred the hardware department to the petting zoo. Recognizing my air, I bent down and asked her what was wrong. She looked up at me with those giant brown eyes and said sadly, well, daddy, it costs 50 cents. So I gave Brandon my quarter. Then she said the most beautiful thing I have ever heard. She repeated the family motto. The family motto is love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter, and no one loves cuddly, furry creatures more than Helen. She had watched us do and say love is action for years around the house and in our family. She had heard and seen love is action, and now she had incorporated it into her little lifestyle. It had become part of her. So what do you think I did? Well, as soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo. We stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen, and she never asked for it. Because she knew the whole family motto. It's not love is action. It's love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another's account. Love is for you, not for me. Love gives, it doesn't grab. Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste the sacrifice. She wanted to experience that total family motto. Love is sacrificial action. Can I just extend that to us today? Could, could the body of Christ take that as a motto? Love is sacrificial action. Now, why should that be our motto? Because it's our king's motto. It's our savior's motto. It's Jesus' motto. Love is sacrifice. Jesus is a sacrificial king. He's a humble king. He's a peaceful king. Now, as we finish, let me, let me finish this thought about Jesus being king in the section that I left out. It's the section where the Pharisees come and ask Jesus about his authority because authority is a big deal. And they're asking, if you say you're the king, by what authority do you have to be the king? And so the Pharisees are subtly saying something important here. And they know that if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the king and if he is the Messiah, then they will have to submit 
to his authority because he's God. And they know that that's the right thing to do and, that they, know, and they know that that's what they've built their lives around. And so they're asking, if you really are the king and if you really are the Messiah, I need you to prove it. By what authority are you doing these things? Now, this is especially important for us today as we process the idea of Jesus being our king and as we also are struggling as a culture with this idea of authority. We're not doing so well with it right now. Have you noticed? We've had a major shift in our culture about authority. Our first reaction almost every time with authority is to question it. Now, there's a reason to question authority when it is leading in a questionable manner, but we've swung the pendulum so far now today in the opposite direction that now a second grader has more authority in a classroom than a teacher does. Now, this isn't very good for our society. It's not good. We're struggling with that, and I think we can all see that, and we all recognize that that is happening. But let me tell you something. The enemy of your soul and mine cares less, doesn't care at all about that second grade classroom where that teacher is being disrespected because of authority or lack thereof. What he loves is an entire society that disrespects authority. Why does he like that? Because when you and I go to share this idea that Jesus is our king and we say that he is the authority in my life, people will then say what? I don't want that. I don't want that. And as a society that is spurring against authority, what it immediately allows Satan to do is to get all of us who don't believe in Christ to spur against Jesus, to reject his love, to reject his peace, to reject his salvation and his joy and the hope that he brings our life for eternity. That's what happens when you have an entire society that is rejecting authority. And so as the people of God, we've got to raise the bar. We have to raise the bar about authority. We have to respect our teachers and respect our first responders and respect our government, even when they're not doing the right thing. Because scripture tells us over and over again, Peter says, respect the authority and pray for them. And at the time that Peter is saying that, Nero is the emperor. So we're not talking about respecting authority when they're great authority. We're talking about respecting the worst authority that's ever been. It's not about respecting authority. It's about respecting Jesus. And when we respect Jesus, we respect everyone, even when they are being evil, even when they are not right, even when they make mistakes, even when they're a horrible leader. Because why? How can I do that? Because I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Because Jesus is in me. And Jesus gives me perfect peace no matter what's going on in the world around me, as crazy as it gets, as chaotic as it gets. And even if they want to cut my head off, I don't care. I'm at peace because Jesus is in here. That's where we need to get to as a people of God. And that's where we get to when we say, Jesus is my king. That's the place we get to. 
Now this is huge because Jesus says to the Pharisees, um, you know, tell me about John the Baptist. His baptism, was it from heaven or was it from earth? And they hem and haw around and they basically say this. Well, if we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. I'm bringing us full circle here to talk about what do you believe? He will ask why we didn't believe John. See, if they had said that they believed in John's ministry, then they would have to acknowledge what John said about Jesus. If they believe in John's baptism, then they have to believe in Jesus. Because everything John did and the entire reason he came baptizing was to point to Jesus. Look at it with me in John chapter 1, verse 29 to 34. There's two things that John says here. It says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came, the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. The reason that John came baptizing was that Jesus, the Messiah, might be revealed to Israel. So if they say we believe that, that John's baptism is from heaven, then they have to say that Jesus is the Messiah. And they can't. Verse 32, John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. If they believe in John's baptism, then they have to admit that Jesus is God's chosen one. So the Pharisees say no. But how about you? How about you? Who's Jesus to you? Is he the chosen one? Is he the king of Israel? Is he your king? Do you want to be a part of a kingdom that is built on humility, peace, and sacrifice? And what will that mean for us? What does it mean to say, I believe Jesus is king? It means he's my authority. He is my authority. He's my head coach. And whatever he says goes. And I'll obey him, whatever he says. And Jesus said all kinds of things, didn't he? I mean, he talked about nearly everything. He talked about money and sex and relationships and personal responsibility and prayer and God's word and the marginalized and culture. He talked about the power of our words and murder and gender and life and death and eternity and tons of other things. I mean, he talked about everything practically. See, when we say Jesus is our king, then we are saying, I will respect Jesus above everything else. Culture saying one thing, Jesus says another. He's my authority. I follow him. He is the one I choose to serve. 
Now, as we leave this room this morning and we go on with our regular lives throughout the rest of the week, our challenge, our challenge is making Jesus king over every area of our life. That's the hard part. It just is. That's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Every single area of our life, glorifying Christ, submitted to his authority, loving to be in relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to surrender every thought, every word, and every lifestyle to Jesus, our humble, peaceful, sacrificial King. Would you stand with me? And could we pray for a minute? So we just close our eyes and pray and I just want to let the Holy Spirit work on us just for a minute before we go. And just as we've been in the Lord's presence over the past hour now, I want us to respond to what the Holy Spirit may be saying in two ways. The first is this. If you've never said yes to Jesus as your king, I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to say, I believe that Jesus is my Savior and my King. Maybe I don't understand that fully yet, but I know I need a relationship with Jesus. I know I need to be free from my sin and forgiven completely, and I want to start that today. So if you'd like to start a relationship with Jesus, I'm just going to pause right here for a moment, but if you'd like to do that, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand so God can see it and we can see it and will give us an opportunity to just pray for you and to pray with you and to celebrate with you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. So we're just going to pause, and if you'd like to start a relationship with Jesus, just raise your hand. Great. Second, when we say Jesus is our king and we say Jesus is our authority, and we say, I, I need to surrender everything to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I know this about me. That means there's something I need to respond to. Because there's always something in my life that isn't perfectly surrendered to my king. And so, just right here in the presence of the Lord, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is revealed to you, there's something in your life that you're not surrendering to Jesus, but you would just like to acknowledge that and say, Jesus, I want to surrender that to you. And I'm not going to ask you to tell us what that is, but you know what it is and the Holy Spirit knows what it is. If that's just where you're at, there's something you need to surrender in your life to King Jesus. Would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you this morning. Great. Hands. Good. All right. Awesome. You can put your hands down. Let me just pray for you. Jesus, thank you so much that you don't judge us. I mean, this is the reason you came. You came to earth and you died on the cross and you rose again because we're all raising our hands because there's things we're not surrendered to you. There's areas of our life that are not fully given over to you and we haven't said, Jesus, this is a part of my life I, I just need your help with. I just pray for those that raised their hand this morning and Holy Spirit, I, I pray that you would especially be with them this week. 
Would you just create some good spiritual rhythms? Would you remind them of some good promises in your word that relate to that specific thing in their life? Would you convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that we can honor you with our hearts and our minds, so that we can worship you with all of our strength? Lord Jesus, would you heal those things in our lives that don't honor you? Jesus, we surrender to you. We surrender to you as our king because you are humble, you are peaceful, you are sacrificial, and so much more. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done in our lives, for the healing that we have from today moving forward. We give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, we all said, amen. 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 Well, thanks for being here this morning. It was great to see all of you. Just want to quick remind you, uh, Friday is our Good Friday prayer experience. Love to have you for that from 11 to 7. Um, And in light of the prayer experience, we will be transforming the auditorium. So I'm going to ask you to be sacrificial for about five minutes while we pick up all the chairs. So we're going to put them in stacks of eight, and we can put them against that wall and against that wall. There are some dollies in the back room there that some of you guys can grab. Always remember, Jesus loves you very much. So do Kate and I. Have a great week. And if you need prayer, uh, there'll be a prayer partner up here. You can come on up and pray.